from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Thank you very much, Howard. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited to be here because I'm going to talk about one of my favorite subjects. Uh, prior to becoming uh, uh, the chief scientist of NASA, I was the head of planetary science. And we, we, we are running through what I would call an absolute golden age of exploration, which includes a deep understanding of the moon and, and how the Earth and the moon have evolved together. So if we want to talk about our future plans for exploring the moon, we really want to start with uh, what happens in the beginning, how uh, our Apollo missions were executed, what did we learn from them, and indeed, um, uh, let's start with uh, our anniversary of Apollo 11. Of course, uh, with our Saturn V, our three fearless astronauts, uh, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, Neil Armstrong, uh, went to the moon 50 years ago in July. Uh, In fact, uh, as they uh, stepped out onto the surface of the moon, what I really appreciated from Neil was uh, he he immediately started doing science. There was a lot of conversation at the time about the regolith on the surface of the moon. This is this ground-up lunar soil. For every impact that occurs, bits and pieces of rock are flying all over the place. And after more and more of this uh, impacting that happens, and micrometeors and everything that happens to the lunar environment, which also happens, by the way, in the Earth environment, uh, that gardening produces these very spiky silica particles that we call a lunar regolith. And the, and, and the thought was at the time from our scientists that once the lunar limb landed, it might be so deep that it could come up to your, to your waist if you stepped out uh, on, on, onto the moon. So the first thing that Neil did is uh, when he got on the ladder and looked around and looked at one of the, the lunar limb legs and immediately stated that it looked like it impacted uh, nicely with uh, uh, maybe by an inch uh, in the regolith. And so that then started his famous speech of one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. And uh, then we ended up ex- uh, exploring the moon in great detail. Now, prior to this, we actually had more than 20 uh, NASA missions to explore the environment around the moon, to land on moon in certain locations. And so even though they, our surveyors landed nicely and didn't, didn't uh, sink in regolith, we didn't know that that was the general situation, as, as I mentioned earlier. We also looked at the sun and we looked at the Earth and the Earth environment and what it would take for astronauts to go from the Earth to the moon through the Van Allen belts and look at the hazardous environments that we did expect with cosmic rays and solar solar uh, flares, et cetera, that, that may uh, be hazardous to our health. So many of these things were going on prior to the landing on the moon. Now here is um, uh, Buzz Aldrin. He's actually uh, deployed uh, uh, two experiments. The first one, as you see here, this is a seismic experiment. Uh, the next one behind him is um, uh, an experiment that is a retro reflector. It's made up of these little cells. Uh, it's about uh, one and a half by one and a half feet in, in size, uh, pointed towards the earth, and, and it was designed 
uh, to re return a reflected light, a laser that we would shine, hit that region, and have that light beam come back to the earth. And then that enables us to measure the distance between the earth and the moon. So this is a, a really a, an exciting set of instruments. We, the seismic instrument wanted to know what the, the structure of the moon was, the, the crust, uh, the, the, the mantle and the core, what those sizes were. Uh, we found out immediately from the seismic instrument, we really didn't know much about the moon. The moon's crust was so broken up, it rang. And so consequently, we didn't have much of an opportunity to probe the interior. Any impact, the seismic waves would move around the crust and not through the mantle and into the core area. And so we had still a lot of questions about the size of the core and the mantle of the moon. Now, those are really important because it gives us hints as to the origin of the moon. Uh, what happens next, of course, is um, a whole series of missions. These are all our six missions, 12 men on the surface of the moon. Uh, as you can see, 11, 12, 13, of course, had the history of going around the moon and coming back. However, 14 landed in the location that, uh, that Apollo 13 would, uh, uh, was designated to go into. 15, 16, 17, and each and every one of these became more complicated, more sophisticated set of instruments that we would put out. And each one also enabled these astronauts to bring back a significant amount of lunar material. Now, we brought back about 850 pounds of lunar material, all right? And we are still studying that today. Scientists around the world have access to our archive. They, we require a proposal. That proposal goes through a review. Uh, we want to know what they're doing with the samples, what they're requesting, uh, and whether the sample will be destroyed or could be returned for later analysis. And, and there are several groups in the world where this kind of analysis goes on that's uh, really quite extensive. It's Germany, France, Japan, and England. Okay, so UK scientists have been uh, analyzing lunar samples uh, for years uh, to, to great effect. So what have we learned from all these experiments? What have we learned from the lunar samples we brought back? What we found out is when we could age date the samples, they were old. They were older than the oldest rocks we have here on Earth. If you go to Australia or you go to Greenland, you can find the oldest rocks on Earth, and they are 3.8 billion years old. But the lunar rocks are 4.5 and 4.6 billion years. So it immediately tells us that the Earth, as it has evolved with an atmosphere, a biosphere, plate tectonics, wind erosion, weather erosion, that it has modified the surface of the Earth extensively. But yet the moon provides a pristine surface, virtually unmodified since it was created. There are periods of time where major modifications are going on for which we want to tease out, and they give us really important hints as to the origin and evolution uh, over time of the Earth-Moon system and even the solar system. Uh, we found, and when we brought back rocks from the moon, anorthosite. This is an important mineral. This anorthosite was, um, uh, gave us the hint that, uh, of how the moon was created. 
the anorthosite floats on lava. And we recognize by bringing rock, this kind of rock, rocky material, even starting from Apollo 11 back, that the origin of the moon had to include its first phase for which the entire moon was of molten form. And we call that the, the lunar magma ocean. And once that cooled, the anorthosite popped to the top, then over time impacts occurring uh, provide us the impact history of the moon. The cratering is the fundamental modification process that's going on in the moon. Even planetary scientists in, uh, prior to, this, uh, to the 60s when we really started studying the moon uh, with in situ and orbiters and landers, etc., measurements that were going on, uh, thought that when we look at the moon and see these, these bowl impact features, that they were not from meteors hitting the moon, but they were a volcanic caldera. And now we know that's not the case. There's hardly any volcanic caldera. Uh, magma leaks out of the surface in different ways, but not producing the caldera that we, we expected. And that what we're looking at is an impact history. Uh, also, volcanic activity was a, quite extensive 4.2 to 3.1 billion years ago, where um, a, a lot of the mantle material oozed out onto the moon in a, in, in a very episodic way that we want to we talk about. And when we brought the rocks back from this uh, equatorial and mid-latitude regions and examined them, we could not find water. Or if we did, it was at such a small amount that, that we questioned whether it could have been earth water and we contaminated the samples. And so we decided that the moon was bone dry. That now has changed significantly. The isotopic analysis of the rocks that we brought back demanded us to look at a theory or, or settle in on a theory for which the earth and the moon were created nearly simultaneously. And so we have what we call the giant impact hypothesis, which we, will, which we will talk about. But folded into that has to be more of our modern observations. Here's what the moon looks like from the lunar reconnaissance orbit. This is a full disk near side and far side. Of course, the moon is tidally locked. That has to be part of the theory of its evolution and, and its creation. That means that only one side of the moon points to the earth. That's why we call it the near side. The far side, although many people say it's the dark side, that's an incorrect way to look at it. Uh, the far side uh, is light and dark, just like the near side is. It goes through phases. Uh, only half of the moon is dark at any one time, and so when we see the moon at a certain phase, we then can reverse that, and that's the illumination pattern on the other side of the moon. The far side of the moon looks so significantly different. That also has to be placed in the context of the origin of the moon. Uh, what we see on the near side are these dark areas that we call mare. We now know what they are. These are basaltic material, and they are lava. As you see these features, they, they are round. Therefore, they are impacts of enormous size for which lava boiled up 
from the interior, after the crust is being blown away in this process of impacts, and filling them in to create a new surface, okay? And so the, that, that happened on the near side. On the far side, there's hardly any mare. There's hardly any volcanic uh, uh, areas. And so we see then the moon in this, in this manner. Uh, our instruments can measure altitude. How high are these features? And we see um, uh, this color-coded uh, set of the moon where the whites and the reds are the highlands of the moon. And the uh, purples and the blues are indeed uh, lower areas. And this area in particular, this bluish-purple area, is, um, is the uh, South Pole Aiken Basin. This is round also. This is an impact. This is the largest impact basin that we can recognize on a planetary surface. And it blew away nearly all the crust. This is an area where there may be mantle material laying on its surface. Scientifically, this is a really valuable. We can't get to our own mantle, and yet mantle material is laying on the far side of the moon for us to be, be able to bring back and return. This is material that has gone, undergone enormous pressures and temperatures, forming new minerals and new, new structures that are characteristic of the interior of a planet called the mantle. And, and we want to see this material in our laboratories. We also have done um, a, a number of measurements of crustal thickness, and we see that this far side is the th has the thickest crust. All right, and, and in fact, by uh, uh, 30 kilometers or so, the far side is is much thicker, and that has to be considered into the theories of how the moon is uh, uh, was created. And and the samples we brought back, we were able to date. And we could then date them uh, from the region that were, that were taken. And because we had a variety of locations, it gave us the opportunity to create a chronometer of events. We can now identify older lunar terrain and younger lunar terrain based on crater density, crater size, and we can age that. We can create, because we have the rocks, a timeline of events. And we've used that chronometer to begin to date surfaces uh, all the way from Mercury way out into the outer planets uh, and, and the moons of those um, uh, outer planets. And we'll be doing that even with Pluto now, too, that we now have passed by and observed. We have also seen magnetic anomalies from our spacecraft, from orbit. At 30 kilometers up, as we fly, fly over areas, our magnetometers indicate that there are regions on the moon, as shown uh, uh, in, the, in these color, color bands, that are uh, what we call magnetic anomalies. So that means iron and nickel. But with that is also a, a series of heavy elements that we commonly call platinum group metals. Now, we mine platinum group metals here on the Earth, okay? And, and most of them are mined out of an area in Africa, in the South Africa region. And, and we know what that area is like. That is an impact that occurred to the Earth for which a protoplanet, an object that had been created it's such a size that it melted the interior and all the heavy material 
like the irons and the nickels, uh, created a core impacting the earth and then concentrating that material for which we're now currently mining it. Recently, we now understand that that happened to create the South Pole-Aiken Basin. We now understand that right here in the middle of the basin is a buried, what we believe is an iron core. We've done this uh, from a lunar reconnaissance orbiter and, and also our gravity measurements from our GRAIL missions. And so this too, then uh, from this impact, has created uh, regions for which uh, the platinum group metals are, are uh, distributed in the moon as such. In the next 50 years, we'll be through with mining several of these platinum group metals, and in the next 200 years, we will have exhausted our supply. These are great metals. If you pick up your iPhone, uh, that's what you have inside, platinum group metals. Great conductors of electricity that do not rust. We use them in electronical systems everywhere. And, of course, we will have to either start a program of recycling or be able to go for other sources, for which the moon has a plentiful source of, the, of these kind of materials. All right. The mineralogy of the moon, and here's a perfect example of it, when we look at the moon in infrared light and then artificially color that frequency band, the mineralogy pops out. In other words, what is the composition of these impact regions? And we see the enormous variety. And so this variety is a material that's been made all over the place in the solar system that because of a variety of processes actually have been delivered to the moon and impacted the moon. And oh, by the way, things that impact the moon have also impacted the Earth and Mars and Venus and Mercury, all right? And so the moon, once again, provides that record of what happened over time. We now know that there's about 100 tons of meteoric material that enter the Earth's atmosphere every day, all right? And here, going to the surface of the moon, we can really tease out what that kind of material is, and, and that will help us understand where it was created. So based on all the observations that we've made, let's, uh, let's talk about how we think the moon was created. And we had um, several theories. One theory is that we captured it. So the Earth was at such a size that uh, a, moon, a moon object uh, came floating by our Earth uh, based on some mechanism, and we were able to capture it. Orbit dynamics uh, are so horrible that, that that never was a good suggestion. Another one is, uh, while perhaps the Earth had uh, excess mass and it was uh, spinning so fast that uh, a chunk of the Earth was pulled out and, and the moon resulted from that, and that's also unworkable. Uh, and so what fits the data the best and what we really believe is uh, uh, what happened in creating the moon is called the giant impact hypothesis. So let me take you back four and a half billion years. Um, a, 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 an object in, close to the orbit of the current Earth uh, is being created, a proto-Earth, if you will, along with other larger objects in or near that orbit. The Earth uh, became so large that uh, gravitationally it began to attract these objects, and a large object that was made in our orbit area impacted the Earth. Dynamics, it works out if we make that 
uh, object, and we call that object Thea, that hit the proto-Earth the size of Mars. Okay? Now, um, for a couple decades now, our computer analysis capability is so good, we're actually able to completely model uh, by, by taking individual elements uh, in the volume, uh, volumetric uh, moon, uh, proto-moon, or Thea rather, and proto-Earth, and, and be able to uh, produce this impact and then watch the pieces of it, okay? And, and uh, so I'm going to show you uh, a movie. Here is uh, computer analysis of Thea uh, hitting the proto-Earth. Uh, there's a couple things I want you to watch out for. One is the massive destruction that occurs. Two, the core of Thea reforms and enters the Earth. And then three, a debris field is left. Okay? So um, here's how this goes. There's the impact. Uh, here, here is the forming of the core, reforming of the core of Thea, which comes back into Earth, uh, leaving this massive debris field uh, around the Earth. So what happens next? Well, what happens next uh, is uh, reforming then the proto-Earth to become the Earth, and that begins at a particular limit. This limit is called the Roche limit. It's about three Earth radii away. It's a, it's a place for which an object that tries to come together can't because the gravitational pull of the Earth will keep it apart, and so it doesn't reaccrete the material that's in this area then will fall onto the Earth and become part of the Earth. But beyond the Roche limit, you actually can get objects that can form. And this is where we form the moon. And so the end of this process, which after the impact, we estimate to be a matter of weeks, no more than a month, we end up with two objects, the Earth and the moon with the moon being just outside the Roche limit. Now, like a ballerina that spins, and as um, uh, she pulls her arms out, she will slow down. As the moon moves away from the Earth, the Earth must slow down to conserve angular momentum. And therefore, in this position, the Earth must be a five-hour day. All right? And the moon must be enormous in the sky. In fact, uh, what it will look like, all right, let's see if we can get to the next slide. Uh-oh, maybe my bad. Okay, if, uh, if you're doing that, great, thank you. So here's what the situation looks like from the apparent sizes of the moon at this time, which is 16 times larger than it is today. It would dominate a hemisphere in the sky if you were standing on the Earth at this time, which would be a bad deal anyway, because the Earth is enormously hot. And over time, over time, uh, as the moon and the Earth interact and the moon moves away from the Earth, as I mentioned, it's uh, at the current rate of one and a half inches per day, the day will then continue to slow down. And here we are today where the moon is 60 Earth radii away. 
Okay? And over this period of time, the moon has an enormously important history that, that is recorded on its surface from the impacts that we're going to, that we're going to interrogate even more. Well, how, what's the difference between the near side and the far side? Well, uh, as, uh, as we talked about with the Earth, there probably is other objects that are being formed uh, that uh, are, are, uh, end up being parts, a part of the moon. And in fact, in this particular case, we may actually have two uh, for which uh, the dynamics of that tell us that they can impact and create a, a thicker crust based on sizes. So we can get a kind of an estimate. This is one of the theories on how we got the far side highlands uh, uh, with this additional uh, size of the crust. There is another theory, we, we don't know if it's the right one either, which starts out in this position where the earth and the moon are being created. And the heat from the earth is so intense, it's actually ablating away the surface of the moon which is only three Earth radii away. And that material forming a tail with most of the material falling back on the surface of the moon would fall on the far side. This immediately tidally locks the moon because of its close position with the Earth and also may explain the size of the far side. Only bringing back material from the far side of the moon will actually be able to delineate one from the other. Now, uh, because of our dating technique, we're able to look at the moon and date many of these impact regions. What we're finding out is, of course, an impact rate, and that rate tells us that for every one impact on the moon, 20 more have hit the Earth. All right? Now, we don't see that record because our atmosphere, as I mentioned, and our, our biosphere have destroyed that. But that record is uh, pristine on the moon. We also find that these ones that I point here are younger, significantly younger. So between 4 and 3.8 billion years ago, these new regions were created from impacts, and we would like to understand that. For more than 40 years, this was an absolute puzzle to us. We had no idea why, after the moon was created and, and, and most of the debris was picked up, why a whole new set of huge material came into the inner solar system and impacted the moon. We now believe we know what the cause is. And it starts with our modeling of our solar system. In Nice, France, several scientists got together to discuss the modeling that they've been doing, they had computer models, as I showed you, the, the moon-earth creation scenario, they were doing it now for all the objects in the solar system. And the meeting was quite contentious. Everyone got up and talked about, can you create the solar system? And not a one of them could create the solar system as we know it today, with the giant planets and the locations they are in. So, uh, being good scientists, at the end of the meeting, they went out to drink, and during that evening, they started back and forth, well, your code is this. No, I have that in the code. What about this? And look, talking about the physics and keeping at it. And one, one said, well, let's forget about our solar system. Let's just try to create, based on seeds of planets that we put out, 
uh, create this solar system. And, the, and another one said, well, the only way we can do that is if we moved them in and made them closer to the Earth. Okay? It's the only way we can do it. So in this example, where the Jupiter is at 5, Saturn 10, uh, Uranus and Neptune 20 and 30, and the comets and the, and, and the Kuiper Belt objects are there, even after 4.6 billion years, they could not create that scenario. So they then immediately went to a new model. Let's take the seeds and put them closer together and let the computer models run. And guess what they found out? I'm going to show you a simulation that comes from their results. And it starts uh, at about 800 million years after the creation of the solar system. We're looking down at it. And what we're seeing is the uh, Kuiper belt objects and the comets in green. And then from the uh, interior orbit of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, all at so much closer uh, distances, 15 to 20, Earth, uh, 20 astronomical units away from the sun, where the Earth and the, and the sun are one astronomical unit. So this is now a new grouping. It's not what the solar system looks like today. And so they started modeling that. They created these giant planets immediately in the code. In the first 10 to 20 million years, those planets were created. That's what we believed happened, had to happen for planet creation. But was it a stable system? So I'm going to run this. And so about uh, look what happens at about 890 million years. This goes unstable. And all those objects start spraying material into the inner part of the solar system. And now we have good evidence, indeed, that the solar system rearranged itself because of the material we brought back from the moon. So the scenario is uh, the giant planets are formed interior to where they were today. Uh, uh, gravitational resonances between Jupiter and these outer planets rearrange the solar system. Jupiter moves inward. Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune move outward. And that movement of the giant planets brings in the Kuiper Belt objects and the asteroids, which then pelt the Moon, pelt Earth, pelt Mars, Venus, and Mercury. And this occurred at 3.8 billion years ago. Independently, by the way, we believe by searching the Earth, early life started on this Earth at 3.8 billion years. All right? So perhaps this process brought uh, the organics and the material that were seeds that began life on Earth. And that record is coming from the moon. So when we look at the moon, here's the Apollo sites. This is um, the near side. And we want to be able to um, uh, look at various regions. What's our plan for the next set of missions to the moon? Uh, we've made some absolutely startling discoveries in the last couple years, and it begins with the North and South Pole. So here's an image of the South Pole up close. And we're going to watch this image change over one month of observations. So as the moon moves around the Earth, of course, the shadows change. The, the dark and light side will move around the Earth. But you see immediately 
that there are areas on the moon in these craters which always remain dark. They are permanently shadowed. And so what you see on the left is the moon in uh, uh, a larger frame where all the dark areas are permanently shadowed craters. Now from orbit, we can also get an indication of the temperature. And these areas are some of the coldest areas in the solar system. Uh, about uh, uh, six or seven years ago, we had a spacecraft called LCROSS, which impacted one of these permanently shadowed craters, blowing material up for which another spacecraft passed through and tasted it, and it had water in it. So these permanently shadowed regions provide a cold trap for which thermodynamics tells us when comets and asteroids full of water impact the moon, they will move to the poles and water will reside in these permanently shadowed areas. That changes the concept completely of a bone dry moon. We now have estimated, based on our analysis of the amount of water in the north and south pole of the moon, there's anywhere between 100 billion, or sorry, 100 to 200 billion tons of water. And many of us think it's an underestimate. We also observe a certain pattern associating with that. If we were to just look at our Arctic Circle, and this is the area where you know, cold, cold is maintained, uh, the moon's axis is uh, very perpendicular to the, to the ecliptic, which is the sun-earth uh, line. And what we find is we should see these permanently shadowed craters with water in a, an Arctic Circle-like uh, area. It's not. It's oblong. It's oblong. And that tells us immediately that something else happened to the moon that created this oblong pattern. See, and here's the location of the L-cross impact where the water was, uh, was displayed. So we're going to go back into history and look at why that, sh that, that uh, uh, watered area is now uh, distributed in those oblong patterns. And the, the supposition is it's because the axis of the moon changed by about five degrees, all right? And so for us to be able to do that, we're gonna go back to the lunar record from Apollo, and we're gonna take that material, and we're gonna look at what's happened over time. And we see these huge impacts that occur. Now what happens next after the impacts is magma comes up from the interior and starts to fill in, creating these Mari regions. Now our Apollo samples that we brought back also had glasses. They were, they were glass beads. These glass beads were black, green, and orange, all right? And we now understand as we interrogate and look in these glasses, these are generated in huge what we call fire fountains as the magma is pouring in, the moon is outgassing, these glasses are created and spewed all over the place. And based on the distribution of the glasses, we believe some of these fire fountains may reach anywhere from 10 to 15 kilometers in height. We also have done now, a, the most recent estimate as to how much material may have been outgassed in the moon and we're finding that that produces a moon with an atmosphere. 
Okay, you can see not only does it shift the pole because of the mass distribution has changed, causing these, these mare to be mass concentrations, cocking the pole, uh, but also the outgassing uh, is everywhere on the moon and providing an atmosphere. Now, the atmosphere, uh, many scientists have thought, has been uh, very tenuous uh, and also didn't last very long and not of significance. That, too, we believe now is wrong. All right? And the reason why is what's been very difficult for us to tease out in creating this lunar atmosphere is how do we protect the lunar atmosphere? We protect it like the Earth protects our atmosphere through its magnetosphere. And within the last couple years, the analysis of the lunar rock and the magnetic domains in those rock have now been analyzed to the point where we now know that the moon had a magnetosphere. At the time of the late heavy bombardment, at the time the moon is producing an atmosphere. This now protects that atmosphere from anywhere from 10 million to perhaps as long as 100 million years. It would look like this. All right. Now what's really exciting about that, uh, the current estimates are that the pressure on, on the moon, the pressure, atmospheric pressure on the moon is about one and a half times of Mars. So that makes it 12 to 15 millibar, which is a significant atmosphere. And of course, even on Mars, over time, uh, as, uh, as, as it goes through its own season, it snows and creates a polar cap. We now are investigating that some of the water, maybe a significant amount of water that was deposited in the north and south polar caps, are from that process of the atmosphere generating and being held by the magnetic field and precipitating out over time, making these permanently shadowed regions extremely important for us to be able to interrogate and analyze and really study the water composition over time. Last year, we found a new water process. This also was a shocker. One of our spacecraft called LADEE, which orbits the moon at very low altitude, was seeing blooms of water over certain periods of time. So as you can see over time, it would make this water signature in its ion mass spectrometer. And, and we really didn't understand it until we began to analyze most closely this peak. This peak occurred during the Geminoid uh, meteor shower. And we now have connected each and every one of these to meteor showers. In fact, there's a couple of them that we didn't even know were meteor showers. All right, And so this is really exciting because what we believe is happening is uh, 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 meteor showers are really all about moving through a defunct comet tail, an orbit where debris has been laid down by the comet over time as it's completely dissipated, and we fly through that orbit. And all the cometary particles that, that are part of that dirty snowball now are available for impact. And as I mentioned, 100 tons a day come into this Earth. That's also happening to the moon. And the peaks occur during these meteor showers. So if we had micrometeors hitting the moon, 
with such force that you're actually creating shock waves and liberating water at, uh, within, within um, uh, inches to feet within the upper layers of the moon. This is also why what we brought back tells us that the moon is desiccated at these top layers. That process has been going on for four or more billion years. Okay? And so what happens with that water, it gets liberated. Uh, if it's ionized by the sun, the solar wind sweeps it out. If not, as it moves down, it will move now towards the permanently shadowed regions, towards these polar caps, towards these uh, 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 regions where we believe a significant amount of water is entailed. Now, I only talked about a couple of examples of why we want to go back to the moon. The science that we want to do is absolutely transformational. We'll be able to get and date better what's happening to create a nice chronometer. Uh, we'll understand the giant planet migration scenario and understand what happened in our outer solar system. We're just beginning to do that. We have water resources which tell us a lot about the history and perhaps the extent of the atmosphere of the moon. And then also the solar wind, the history of the solar wind is on the far side of the moon. It's embedded in the regolith. Now since we haven't been there and brought any of that material back, we're really quite uh, excited about learning the history of our own sun. Uh, we're going to be able to land important measure, uh, instruments that will measure not only the cross mantle but core size. We believe the core is very small indeed because most of the Thea core went back into the earth. And then on the far side, the radio environment of the, of the moon is so quiet, it will open up a brand new window of, observation, of, of observing the universe in these radio frequencies. So we're really quite excited about that. Of course, the United States, uh, the, our administration has come out with Space Directive 1, which is all about going to the moon and then on to Mars in a sustainable way, in a, in a manner for which there's some urgency. We want to, by 2024, have the first woman and the next man on the surface of the moon. And that location will be the South Pole. We're going to go back to the moon, but in the South Pole and in these permanently shadowed cratered regions and extract the water. We now have a number of contractors that we're working with. These are commercial companies that are planning to go to the moon. We want to connect with them. Uh, and, and, of course, we're developing the space launch system. This system is 10% uh, more capable than the Saturn V. Uh, we're uh, developing the Orion capsule has the ability to house six people, not Apollo that only has three, but this is a highly capable capsule, which will be launched and then go to the moon. Now, we'll do this in stages. Our first phase, uh, this is the Artemis program. Our first uh, phase will be uh, SLS, Orion capsule launch, next year, uncrewed, so we can work out uh, all the details and the bugs, as we call it, uh, to make our next um, uh, uh, missions even more safe. In the meantime, we'll work with commercial entities and, and provide landers. Uh, and then uh, we will do a crude uh, fly around the moon as we then begin to develop the structure that we call Gateway. This will be a mini space station, if you will, around the moon. This will be very important for us to be able to then dock not only habitats, 
but for ascent and descent vehicles to the surface of the moon. Now, the gateway has a number of parts to it for which we're now working with the international community, and that includes the UK Space Agency to be able to do this. Uh, we, our plan is to then construct this gateway, and then with the Orion capsule dock uh, with it, and then uh, go down to the surface. Uh, the gateway has a, a highly elliptical orbit. Uh, for which it spends most of its time as a polar orbiter in the southern hemisphere that allow us from the gateway actually to manage and manipulate remotely a variety of instruments and gather data uh, and then also send humans down to the surface of the, of the planet. Uh, sorry, of the moon, as you, as, you can, as you can see here. 2024 is uh, uh, a, a doable date. Uh, challenged by our administration that we indeed uh, plan to, uh, to do. What is the future? Well, the future of the moon in a sustainable way will allow us to continue the science and exploration. We want to have uh, the ability to live and work on a planetary surface. Moon is first. We're going to take that uh, knowledge and go to Mars. It also provides a whole series of resources that potentially could be a fuel depot and into manufacturing as we engage our commercial entities. And so with that, please come along. This is going to be an exciting time. And for those few of us who may have watched and been inspired by the Apollo program, your inspirational moment as we go forward to the moon is just a few years away. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.